Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Back to the podcast. It has been a little while. And I'll be honest, turning on the uh, microphone this week was uh, was a little surreal because it has been a little while. You might remember our um, unceremonious ending uh, before before my break on sabbatical, uh, when our uh, wild at heart friend John Eldridge decided to display his wildness by uh, just hanging up on me during the podcast, and um, I've had a few of you reach out and express different things, uh, including some concerns over that being a less than ideal practice. Um, but I just want to say, you know, it's exactly what I needed. And I think if he would have been just, hey, maybe reconsider what you're doing, it probably wouldn't have worked as much as him hanging up on me because I'm a little bit hard-headed. And so, yeah, I'm um, uh, back after uh, you know a month and a half of, of not doing this. And I'll be honest, I didn't realize how much I needed a break from this and doing everything. Um, but I did because there are like two main lessons that I that I really needed to learn, that I wouldn't have learned uh, without this time. And these two things have like been really helpful uh, for me. A couple of weeks before my sabbatical, I was having dinner with some friends, and uh, we were just talking about music we are listening to. And I had just finished up binging uh, the show uh, Yellowstone. And so I said, I've, I've been listening to a lot of... Um, I guess it's country. I don't think they call themselves country music. It's uh, like Ryan Bingham, Chris Stapleton, Sturgill Simpson, I think that's his name. Uh, listen to a lot of Ryan Bingham, and I think these people are like not like Nashville pop country people. Um, no offense to you pop country fans, but I feel like I want my country musicians to uh, at least make me feel like they're more country than me, whereas Nashville country, not so much. But uh, I'm a fan of pop music, so no, nothing against pop music at all. But um, listen to this... Ryan Bingham. So I'm telling these friends this, and my, my buddy Garrett, who is a, uh, a music aficionado, makes the observation as a good Enneagram Five would. And Garrett, the Enneagram Five, says, "Look, you're a seven, and the music you say you're listening to a lot of right now is uh, is all really sad music. Why do you think that is?" And I just sat there for a second, and of course I tried to make an awkward joke to diffuse the tension, but uh, decided not to do that. And I just sat there and I didn't have an answer for it. I really didn't. And uh, went about my day and went back to work, you know, the next morning and just kept on going. And uh, a couple weeks later, start the sabbatical, uh, record one podcast the first day. Uh, second day, I'm doing the one with John Eldridge. And he says, yeah, you need to stop. And uh so I did, and uh, you know, wasn't trying to crank through one book a week like I typically do. Uh, obviously, wasn't writing sermons or preaching or writing on anything, and I just got uh, got quiet, and I felt like I started to have an answer for the question of why I'm listening to a lot of Ryan Bingham music, um, and to kind of be aware of some of the stuff that I've been so busy uh, that I moved past. And it's what I needed to acknowledge, and I don't think I'm the only one. Uh, this this has been a pretty, you know, pretty tough year uh, for me. Obviously, um, you know, my mom passes away uh, a year ago, which the anniversary was just a few weeks back. Um, uh, my 
uh, good friend Mark Rogers passes away in a tragic car accident. Um, and, you know, the typical COVID stuff that, uh, you know, everyone's gone through with you know, projects that we worked on with our vocation that uh, obviously didn't materialize like we wanted to. Uh, seeing our kids having to deal with adversity is it's sad. And there's just a lot of stuff that we missed out on, um, mostly being connected to people we care about the most. And, uh, you know, I'm not the first to say this, but I, I feel like I need to remind myself and everyone else that there's a season of grieving that we're going to all have to go into, regardless of what this past year has felt like to you, because we've lost things, and there are things that we we counted on, we expected, we we built our life around that we haven't been able to do. And you know, even if you didn't lose a mom, and even if you didn't lose a friend, even if you haven't, you know, gone through some um, other stuff, uh, we all have things there that we need to address. And so, a lot of what I've been doing over the last month and a half, um, things that kind of just slowed me down, uh, got into paddleboarding, uh, going to some parks in the area and going for walks, um, swimming, not like exercise swimming, just kind of just moving around in water. Um, all, all these things are kind of like active meditations for me in, in the same way that uh, some of you use like prayer beads or a prayer rope, uh, or like, you know, the spiritual fathers talked about practices like uh, that are often done like at, at a monastery where you have monks who are praying constantly, which involves them doing dishes or doing gardening or something where they're being active with their hands so that they can be calm with their mind. And so I found myself doing a lot of things like that that would put me in opportunities to just to listen and to be present to what was going on and to answer some harder questions that uh, in the busyness of doing so many things that I really love and I care about, um, I, I was able to move past and to not take the time to listen to him. And so uh, it, it's kind of ironic that I, I wrote a book that came out a year ago telling us that we have to go where we don't want to go so that we can be all who we want to be. And uh, and what I found myself realizing is that it's been really easy for me to, to not go where I don't want to go uh, because I'm doing things that I'm happy to do. And the, the problem is w- when that happens is the things that you've pushed under the surface, they don't, they don't stay hidden. Eventually they, they come out. <laughs> I was, um, uh, I was, so I've been doing jujitsu for the last year and a half. It's been a great addition to my life. And, uh, one of the guys put on a few weeks back, he was putting on some West coast rap and, uh, West coast rap has language, which typically I don't partake in on the podcast. Uh, though, though some of our guests are quite comfortable using some of those words and uh there's a song by Tupac and uh I look at the guy who picked on the music and he saw my face and he misinterpreted completely what was going on and so he, he changes to a different playlist and he goes yeah priest the priest over here is giving me a weird look and uh it, it wasn't that it was actually that the song by Tupac uh, Dear Mama came on and it's a song in which Tupac is uh, speaking uh, profusely of his love and appreciation for his mom. Uh, you are appreciated was one of the refrains of the song. And uh, I was going, man, I, I really don't want to have to have like a moment where I had this emotional breakdown uh, at a jujitsu school. It's probably not the ideal place for that. And uh, I think that happens, though, if, if things are not addressed underneath the surface. And I think that's ultimately what like purity is where you have this consistency with what's on the surface and what's underneath. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard said purity is to will one thing. And I think part of willing one thing is to have everything inside of you going the same direction and to be pointing uh, forward and, and 
acknowledged and addressed. And sometimes you don't get things going in the same direction of like clarity and awareness when you're just running past them. So I, I found myself um, uh, deeply needing what I found over the last month and a half. And uh, this has gone a lot longer, <laughs> eight minutes of this. I didn't expect to do this because I was also going to talk about uh, one other thing I learned in the sabbatical, but maybe I'll save that for next week uh, or some other time. But um, anyway, all that to say, uh, I'm glad John Eldridge hung up on me. It was exactly what I needed. Thank you for all of you who reached out and asked, uh, just checking in on me and uh, you know, said you missed the podcast and all that. Uh, it, it's, it too is deeply appreciated. So thank you for that. Um, but we're going to get back after it. There's a few podcasts that I've had to kind of push back because of the sabbatical things that I had lined up already. And um, I'm looking forward to sharing them with you and, and having these conversations. Um, you, one of the things that I've, I've thought about on the podcast in terms of like the direction of what I'm trying to do, uh, some of you sense this already, but I, one of the things that I, I feel like I try to do, especially with the podcast, is help kind of navigate through some substantial questions, uh, big issues that are very serious, but I don't want to take them, take myself too seriously as I have these conversations, because while these are big, ethereal, hard questions to, to conceptualize, um, we ourselves are not the one who have to solve them, right? Like, so, so we can take the questions serious without taking ourselves too serious, and that's what I try to do in the podcast. And so I, I, I want to help us like navigate through some of these issues. And if you've been listening for a while, you, you hear that. We talk about a lot of stuff from how to understand God, how to understand our place in a world that is uh, divided by race. Um, the conversation for today is uh, with with my guy, Todd Detheridge, who uh, he's been on the podcast before. He's the guy who um, led the trip with Telos that uh, took me to Israel, Palestine uh, a couple years ago. And in light of what's going on recently in the news with Israel and Palestine, I wanted to bring him back on and help him uh, or have him help us kind of navigate through this. And I don't pretend to be an expert on Israel-Palestine or, or or foreign affairs and, and, and the place that America's supposed to have in it. But what I am trying to be an expert of is an example of someone who's willing to have conversations and to listen. And so bring him back on, and hopefully Todd can help uh, you and I gain a greater understanding of what's going on and what it means for us to be peacemakers. Uh, because when we look at what's going on right now, it's really easy to become people who are very... Uh, pessimistic, but I think Todd helps us see beyond um, pessimism and to have a different disposition, which I think you're going to really love. So um, without further ado, here's my guy, Todd Detheridge. And by the way, thanks so much for listening. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have returning to the podcast, Todd Detheridge. How are you, Todd? Doing doing really well. Good to, Good to see you again. Yeah, uh, you've been on the podcast how many times now? Did we just do one in? We did one the, from yeah from from Israel a number of years ago. Yeah, like four years. I ago. I feel like I, you've been. I feel like you've been on more now. Maybe just because uh, that trip, I just heard you talking a whole lot, and maybe I just assumed that was <laughs> a bunch of podcasts. I don't know. I took up um, residence in your head, and I'm still there. <laughs> well, okay, so obviously with what's going on like you're kind of my guru for this like you're the guy i i go to you're my trusted source so maybe that's maybe that's what it is i don't know if i have anything wise to say i'd be happy to try to say it but uh, i do these trips with a lot of folks and i talk a lot on the trips there's a lot of you know teaching and processing that we do and i had one moment on a trip once 
and she got on, the, she'd been listening to me for a week and she got on the plane and she was exhausted from Tel Aviv airport back home. And she fell asleep immediately when she got aboard. And at some point she woke up and she was in the air and she heard the flight attendant giving some kind of announcement. And she said, wait, that's not Todd's voice. Who is this? What, where am I? What's going on? She was completely confused. So I do yeah. talk too much sometimes. That's true. But you're, but you're, I know you're not like a preacher or like officially a teacher, but you are someone gifted with teaching. So it makes sense that you do a lot of talking because you're the way that you guided us through that whole process was uh, invaluable to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you do a lot of the talking. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. (laughs) Okay. Um, how do we jump into this? So most of us have seen on the news, uh, conflict, uh, violence, unrest, uh, that's going on Israel, Palestine, and for some of us, we like we know that there's strife in the Middle East, and we want peace in the, like everywhere. And this one, we want peace in North Korea, we want peace all around the world. But like this one seems to be uh, our connection to conflict in this part of the world seems to be like more like connected to. It. Is that fair to say? It is. I mean, this is a conflict that occurs half a world away. But it occurs in a place that a lot of people care about. So this is, for many people, it's the Holy Land. It's the birthplace of Judaism and Christianity. And it is a holy place for 1,400 years since the first days of Islam to Muslims. And so not just the people who live there, but you know, literally it's, it's possible to say that a few billion people around the world have some attachment to this place. Uh, and so a lot of us care about it. And as Americans, and especially uh, American Christians, have an an inordinate fascination with what takes place there. And so what takes place there is not just a conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, but it has a lot of outside actors, a lot of outside influence. Other Arab states and people in the region, Europeans, uh, and and particularly Americans, play a very important and outsized role there. And so when conflict is happening, we we both care about it, and because we care about it, we're also helping to be a part of it in many ways, and setting the parameters in which it takes place. So it is unique in some ways in that way. Yeah. When you say that uh, we play an outsized role in that, if someone's like, okay, well, what exactly is the outside role, outsized role that Americans play in this conflict? What's kind of like the, the 101 level answer to that question? You know, it, it comes on all, uh, in a lot of different ways, but I mean, this is a vexing foreign policy challenge to the United States, that functions like a domestic political issue. And so because we care about it, we channel our passions into kind of activism that mirrors the conflict itself, which is often like for many American Christians in particular, it's very, it's very pro-Israel, but often that works itself out in ways that are very anti-Palestinian. There is a growing uh, voice, even in some Christian circles, and particularly on college campuses and more progressive political circles, that's very pro-Palestine, but and oftentimes that can come out as ways in ways that are very anti-Israeli. And so we created this energy around it, this activism around it. So what it looks like in terms of U.S. official interventions, you know, we get a lot of money. We spend a lot of American tax dollars go there. So Israel is the largest recipient of military assistance uh, from the United States. We give them $3.8 billion a year. Um, we also fund uh, humanitarian and other causes for the Palestinians. And so we're in, 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 until a few years ago, we were often the largest donor to the Palestinian Authority and to other causes within the Palestinian uh, sector. 
and uh, and we create policies around this. So we can talk more about later the current conflict that's happening in real time right now. But for instance, there's you know there's a there's an attempt to have conversations in the UN Security Council around this, and the United States is sort of blocking any kind of action at this point uh, because we we involve ourselves in a lot of ways uh, in, in setting the context in which this thing takes place. And then just at the level of individuals, a lot of Americans, you know, give to causes, the gift to charities and other organizations that do things on the ground. And some of that can be helpful. And a lot of it actually works out being unhelpful in terms of conflict resolution. A lot of Americans end up giving to causes on the ground that actually make the conflict harder to solve. But my point in all that is is that we we care a lot about it. Yeah. How how do we give to causes that actually uh, inhibit peace being brought about in the area? Well, if you're if you're imagining some kind of fair and equitable way to solve this conflict, uh, there's a there are a number of different ways to think about that. But for the, for the last at least thirty years, the main paradigm has been to create a two state solution. You know, um, Israel and Palestine side by side in peace and security is the language of the U.S. government for many years. Um, and to do that, you you have to create some kind of territorial divide. Now that's a it's kind of a, a concept that, that most people are not seeing possible anymore. But one of the reasons it's not possible, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons is that there are Jewish Israeli communities that have been built inside the Palestinian territory, the West Bank, uh, called settlements. And there, there are churches that, you know, that, that really support this work. Uh, and they give, they, they give financially and, and, and in other ways, they support the, the construction of settlements in the West Bank, for instance, which, which, undermines the possibility of achieving some kind of, you know, two-state solution if that was the paradigm. And it also is just, in many ways, unfair to Palestinians because it's being, these these communities are being built on Palestinian land in violation of international law as well. Yeah. Yeah. And much of the support of settlers, uh, it seems, comes from a theological understanding that if you bless Israel, the nation, therefore God will bless you, which I believe comes from a very perverted and adulterated understanding of Genesis 2, uh, the, you know, the thing that God said to Abram, where whoever you bless or whoever blesses you will be blessed. Uh, I, I remember hearing that for the first time when I was 1920 at an evangelical church, and I was going like, what are y'all talking about? Like, this is not part of the tradition that I'm a part of. And to hear that, I was just kind of taken back. But that's, there, there's a large chunk of evangelical Christians today who believe that they're doing God's work, and the reason that America is financially pros, uh, prosper, has a lot of prosperity is because of that commitment they're making. I think, I think it's the largest motivator for a lot of the way Americans think about what goes, goes on there. There are some people who think it's all about end times theology, dispensationalism, and eschatologies, and that sort of thing. And there's definitely a strain within, the, a subset within the American uh, evangelical or more, maybe more fundamentalist part of American Christianity that, yeah. that, that definitely has that view and that motivates them. But I think for most Christians that I, that I talk to, uh, there's this just desire to sort of bless Israel and they equate biblical Israel and, and, uh, the, the promise made to Abraham to the modern nation state of Israel. And they do see exactly what you saw. Israel has kind of become like a lucky rabbit's foot. For a lot of Christians, and like you know, as long as we bless Israel, we're gonna we're gonna you know be fine, and we're gonna prosper and, and grow. And the moment that we stop doing that is it, it that's the moment America is you know is de- in not just in decline, but in but is gonna be uh, is gonna fall in some way. And and I think that's such a 
it's such a misread of that passage. Uh, and there's a lot of other ways to interpret that. And, and throughout Christian history, there are a lot of ways that that's been interpreted, uh, of course, that are different than that. But, but my point even is often to folks who do believe that and who interpret Genesis that way is to ask themselves, well, how, how like, it's not if you should bless the modern nation state of Israel, but how? If, if that's what you think you should do, what, how should you do that? Because my view is that a lot of folks who, who identify in a very pro-Israel way and want to bless Israel in, sincerely, I mean, they really, you really do. Um, they actually do the things that they, the way that that works out is they often are making the conflict that Israel has with the Palestinians much harder to solve. And that's the best way you can bless Israel is also to bless Palestinians. Because in, no. in our view, there's no good future for anybody there until there's a good future for everybody there. You have this small piece of land. You have nearly equal numbers of Arabs and Jews that live in it. Israel controls all of the land. But people have different rights and standards if they're Palestinian, depending on where they live. Uh, but Israel is in control of all the land, but not everybody has, has equality in the land. Not everybody has the same sets of, of rights and privileges. And until you deal with some of those fundamental issues, then you'll never get to the kind of peace and security that Israelis want without dealing, without making sure that Palestinians have those same things as well. So you bless Israel by, by blessing Palestinians, you bless Palestinians by blessing Israelis, and that's the way that you work for, for, a, for peace in the land. And I think that's just, the, that's, a, that's a much better way to understand what it means to bless Israel, yeah. if that's your motivation. One of the things, yeah, one of the things that you've helped me come to understand is that, you know, any positive future involves both groups of people being at a good place. Both groups of people, like any future that's not for Palestine and or Palestinians and for Israelis, is not a, a solution for anything. We predicated our work on this idea that the, we call it mutual flourishing; that there can't be a yeah. good future for one without the other in the land, and that's really based on is rooted in the Christian understanding of, of of neighbor. I can't have anything I want for my myself, my family, my tribe, people like me. That not only that I won't not allow for my neighbor, but I actually have to that I have to be willing to work for for my neighbor. I mean, I think that's the that's a very central understanding of what what Jesus was talking about uh, in in the things he was trying to teach us in this in the golden rule and other things is that I have to actually be willing to work for the kinds of good things for my neighbor that I want for myself. And when I'm willing to do that new things become possible and a new reality of how we live together becomes possible. And that's, that's, that's to me, that's the only frame that we can use to deal with any kind of conflict resolution is, is moving to a place where we're willing to work for the flourishing of others, not just ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Mutual flourishing. Uh, There was a piece that came out in the Atlantic uh, recently uh, that made the argument that uh, George W. Bush's administration, which, which administration were you a part of? Was that that one? George yes. W's. Okay, right. so uh, you and you, Condoleezza, and George came up with this, but they uh, made a, the three of us. Yeah, just around yeah. having beers one night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe pizza as well. Is, pizza, uh, pizza and beers. But yeah, well, the president didn't drink, so yeah, it, it couldn't have been beer. I'm, I must be misremembering. I was referring to root beer. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm a pastor. Um, never, nevertheless. Okay, so the speech in the landing made uh, the argument that that administration, you're the administrator you're a part of, uh, made this argument about the root cause of 9-11, and that they argued that citizens are more likely to resort to violence when they lack peaceful, constructive means to express their grievances. And 
I can only imagine that part of what's happening right now is that you have tension between Palestinians and settlers who are trying to figure out, okay, this is this right? Is this mine? This isn't fair. And then you get the conflict that comes in um, from a group like Hamas. And so maybe what I'd like you to do is kind of just give us uh, an entry-level understanding of the difference of like the Palestinian strife, the anger, and then Hamas and its role, because for some, it looks like Hamas is this opportunistic terrorist group that's using the Palestinian frustration as a pretext to launch their initiatives to kind of further their causes, while, in my opinion, diminishing the actual Palestinian causes that they're working towards. It's, this is such a complicated story, and so it's hard to get sort of you know down to what, what the essence is in, a, in short order. But I mean, I, I like what you just said, so I'll unpack that just a little bit. I mean, most of us are living our lives and not paying attention to this because we have many other things that are going on. And suddenly this jumps on the front page of the news about 10, 11 days ago now when Hamas began to fire rockets out of the Gaza Strip into south and central Israel. Uh, And that's not a new phenomenon, but there's a massive barrage of rockets that came out of Gaza and Israel responded with a massive bombing campaign. And Israel, you know, possesses the, the... the most powerful military in the Middle East. And so they have a, a capability to do, to do massive damage and retaliation in Gaza. And that's what's been going on for 10 days now. And over 200 Palestinians have been killed in that. Uh, uh, 12 Israelis have been killed in the Hamas uh, rocket uh, attacks. And this is a bi- big mess. But, but that's what we see because that's what's dominating the news right now. What we don't see is that there's sort of a larger context in which this taking, takes place. This is a decades old, not centuries old, but a decades old conflict. And the current situation has sort of spiraled out of control, uh, mostly in the last few weeks. Uh, and so, we, you know, we can kind of go back to the beginning or we can kind of start with a more recent context. But I guess the, the sort of oversimplified thing, and I'll get hit from every side for, for trying to do this in, in too quick an order and being oversimplified. But you have two sort of people groups who have these deep connections to the same piece of land, you know, Israelis and Palestinians. They're modern uh, national groups in that way, uh, sort of buying into a nation-state system or nas- a, a, a system of nationalism. Uh, but they each have long histories there. Both Jews and Arabs have long histories in, in this area. And then you have the three religious groups, you know, Christians, Jews, and Muslims, who each have long in, in histories and deep connections there that, that, are, that you know, go back many, many centuries. And this, the modern conflict starts in the sort of early 20th century when Jews mostly fleeing persecution in Europe and centuries of anti-Semitism perpetrated by Christians, by the way, it's important to note, there is no anti-Semitism in the world except for the fact that Christians weaponized their own theologies against Jews for many centuries in Europe. And so Jews leaving Europe, trying to, to return to their ancestral homeland to build a Jewish nation state in this modern, in, in, in this era of nationalism and, and coming to this land. But it, it's not an unpeopled land. There are Arabs live there, Palestinians living there in a, in a region of the Ottoman Empire called Palestine. And so that's kind of the origin of this conflict. And so it, the modern state of Israel is created in 1948. There's so much we're leaving out. But in the creation of the state of Israel, you get the displacement of most of the Arab, Arab population. Uh, and so there's this giant refugee population that, that exists. And many of them end up in and around Gaza City. And so this territory today that we call the Gaza Strip, about 2 million people, 65% of them are refugees or descendants of refugees 
from 1948. So they have been living in this sort of refugee status for more than 70 years now. Uh, and so that, that's, that's all kind of got to be in the backstory of this. And again, there's a whole lot more I could unpack about, uh, about yeah. that. But jumping ahead to what's happening in the news right now. So you have, uh, when the war was over in 1948, Israel was created, you had a hard division right down the middle of Jerusalem between East and West. And West Jerusalem became entirely Jewish and East Jerusalem became entirely Arab. And, and there were people that were displaced on both sides. A lot of people, a lot of Arabs, were, Palestinians were forced out of West Jerusalem. A few Jews were forced out of their homes in East Jerusalem. And one of those neighborhoods where there were some Jews who lost their property is, is in the northern part of the old, just north of the old city in Jerusalem. And that's been the, that was the center of the tension a few weeks ago. It's been going back on for years now, but, but, it, it came back sort of onto into prominence a couple a few weeks ago as a sort of a radical Israeli group was trying to displace some Palestinians from their homes in this neighborhood. Massive protests broke out in response to this effort. Those protests made their way up to the Temple Mount area where the Al Aqsa Mosque stands. Uh, there was a, a real uh, crackdown on the protesters on the by Israeli police against Muslim protesters during Ramadan on the Al Aqsa Mosque compound. And that set off this sort of firestorm in Israel of these protests and, and, and accompanying police action that was seen in many ways in the same lens that a lot of Americans saw a lot of the police action that's happened here in more recent years and the Black Lives Matter movement, some, some very intense police pressure, uh, you know, uh, uh, stun guns and, 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 uh, and even tear, tear gas and skunk water and rubber bullets and things like that. And so that whole thing is going on, and Jerusalem is being messed with in ways that are very, very, we know from history, very, very dangerous. When, when people who live in Jerusalem feel that their identity and connections there are under threat or attack, and when you start feeling, and when, and when there's sort of these perceived or real threats to holy sites, especially to sacred space, this is, becomes very combustible. And this whole thing is going on, and in the middle of that, the Palestinian uh, leadership in the West Bank cancels uh, planned elections, and the Hamas movement, which controls Gaza, is ready to intervene and in, in, uh, participate in these elections. And and now they're frustrated by that, and they see an opportunity to assert themselves into this. And so Hamas begins to fire rockets into Israel, uh, basically to cast themselves as the defenders of Jerusalem. Uh, in, as these things are going on, and, and then Israel responds massively. And so that's kind of the context in which this happen, happens. And it's just one of those things that we've seen over and over again. You know, what happens in Jerusalem doesn't stay in Jerusalem. But when you start, when things, go, when unrest happens there, Jerusalem might calm down, but it reverberates throughout the, the region. And it's very important that, that, that wise leaders think about those things. And what we have right now is a real failure of Israeli leadership that has cultivated and encouraged some of these more extremist elements of, of Israeli society, brought them into the mainstream, into the, the current, current prime minister, Netanyahu, has brought some of these folks into his coalition as he's trying to form a new government right now. You've got dysfunctional leadership on the Palestinian side, again, sort of an autocratic leader in the West Bank who's now canceled elections again. He's been, he's been in office for 16 years and hasn't, you know, hasn't stood for election in all those years. And has now once again canceled elections. You've got Hamas, which is on the you know the terrorist list and and uh, controlling the Gaza Strip and intervening. And and then you've got a U.S. administration that has been completely AWOL on this uh, for for over a week now. And so all of that sort of you know mix of things has really led us to this conflagration we see right now. 
Yeah. The, the idea of bombing takes on uh, a, a new experience to me since I was um, uh, taken into a bomb shelter at uh, someone's home just, I don't know, uh, half a mile away from the Gaza Strip when uh, I was uh, on the trip with you. And to go like, this is something that they've, they've all lived through. They've, they've expected this. This is something that in some ways that like even their architecture is prepared for this. So it's almost like there's always this level of like unrest, uncertainty, like bombs could fall on my house as a normal part of life over there. And th- that's unfathomable for, for some of us. Now, um, a couple weeks ago, there was a report that came out that described uh, what was happening over there. And the, the term that was used was apartheid, that what's happening over there is analogous to an apartheid that, for example, would happen in uh, South Africa. And I can only imagine that sort of like attention from this. Maybe you can explain a little more about the document, but from that sort of like uh, critique of what's happening also is making Israelis very sensitive to the pressure from the outside world of calling them, um, like, perpetuating an apartheid right now. Is that fair? Yeah, so you've raised some important issues. First, let me start, start with the first thing you mentioned about the woman you visited on the, on the border of the Gaza Strip, a Jewish-Israeli woman named Roni. Because we just were on the phone with her this morning. To, uh, tell us that we have our own podcast. It's not nearly as... Uh, you know, as well regarded or as popular as yours, but we do have our own. And this morning we had we uh, had our team together to talk w- with our listeners about what's going on there. And we and, and Roni was one of our guests. So she called in. She's been living in her safe room in her, uh, you know, which is a part of her home for for 10 days now. And she stepped out of the safe room for about 15 minutes uh, just outside and, and did a call with us. Uh, but that's her reality. And in, in the war, the last time there was a, a war between Gaza, between Hamas and Israel, uh, her home was hit by a rocket and, and the roof caught fire and her car was destroyed. And one of the workers, and they have greenhouses there, and one of the workers in her, for one of her greenhouses was killed in that attack. And she's an amazing woman because in, she's lived with this harsh reality for, for many years. And yet she's one of the most amazing peace activists I know. And she spends all of her time when there's not hostilities trying to, to get people on both sides to see things differently and to get and to build a, a better way. And, and she's fine right now, but she sounded very, um, very traumatized as well. Her whole family, our children and grandchildren have all left and she and her husband have stayed behind uh, because now she's afraid to leave. She's afraid because she could, you know, their, their car could be hit just driving down the road. And so it's very, it's very, it's very tragic. On the other hand, you have 2 million people trapped in the Gaza Strip and, uh, and with, with, with nowhere to go. I mean, they have, they don't have the bomb shelters and they're being bombarded right now and, and, Tens of thousands of people are now homeless in the Gaza Strip just over the bombing campaign for the last few days. So all of that is very tragic. So you've raised the, the A word here, and that's a tough one. Um, so the Human Rights Watch, as you pointed out, came out with a, with a very important report recently, uh, just a couple weeks ago, in which they described the system there as apartheid. They're not the first to use that. I would say an Israeli, a Jewish-Israeli human rights organization called Betselem had issued a report late last year in which they used the word apartheid as well. And even going back in history, there have been, uh, I mean, when I was working in the government at the State Department and President Bush sponsored a conference uh, on Israeli-Palestinian peace, the Israeli prime minister at the time, a right-wing prime minister named Ehud Olmert, on the way home, uh, on the plane home, was, inter- was interviewing with some Israeli reporters and they asked, why are you doing this? And he said, because if we don't make peace along the lines of a two-state solution, we will end up 
living in an apartheid system. Uh, and but yet, it's a very controversial word, and 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 um, many Israelis flatly reject it. But what this report is describing, whether the word is is accurate or fair, is not for me to determine. But what the report is describing is an experience that you've seen probably yourself when you were there, and that I've seen. And it, there's a very two tiered system. There is there is one group of people that that has more rights and privileges than the other and rules over the other and controls the other in different ways. Uh, and and that's, that is an undeniable fact. That, and that is very much at the center of what much of this conflict is about. And so if there is a process, going back to something you said earlier, if there is a process by which that arrangement can be challenged and dealt with, then, then there's a channel that people have to, 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 you know, to, to go in. And when you don't have an, a, a process or a, a legitimate place for people to take their grievances, then you are inevitably going to end up with a violent response. It does not for a minute justify violence or rockets coming out of Gaza or I, I don't, don't mishear me at all. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't justify it, but we have to learn to hold intention our ability to condemn violence and at the same time seek to understand what might be going on here and, and not be so quick to just say, well, it's all just motivated by hatred. It, it can, there can be other motivators. Hatred is a motivator, but there can be other things that cause people to be violent. And one of those is to close out all opportunities for, uh, for some kind of justice to be served. And when you don't have, you know, the, the failure of the sort what was called the peace process over the last many years to achieve anything in terms of Palestinian autonomy and freedom and, you know, that sort of thing, uh, that's completely discredited and has been going nowhere. It, there's no place for people to channel all of their frustrations into something that is constructive. There are on violence campaigns and those don't, you, we wouldn't be talking right now uh, if, if there had, if there weren't rockets coming out of it. And that's just a tragic reality. Because there are not violence campaigns that happen all the time. Those don't make the front page of the New York Times or, yeah. or CNN. It's only when, you know, when, when we devolve into this level of violence that people start paying attention. And that's a, that's a tragedy. Yeah. It seems that we're very comfortable to call bombs violence because that is violence. But when the conversation is about the, you know, uh, the neighborhood east of Jerusalem and people just taking other people's homes, that is a form of violence, but it's not as like front page worthy of attention. Exactly. And so it, it just goes muted in most of our lives. If you, use, if you have the ability to use the power of, of the state to, in, to enforce your will on, on someone else, then that is a form of violence. And we need to be able to name those things too. And so that's exactly what was happening here. The Supreme Court of Israel was used was 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 considering this case to evict these Palestinian families from their homes so that these Jewish Israeli groups could move you know Jewish Israelis into those homes and there are in their favor are two Israeli laws that basically allow Jewish Israelis to reclaim properties that Jewish properties that were lost in 1948 at the same time Arab are not allowed to reclaim property they lost in 1948. And so you have built into the system a discriminatory you know, aspect of all this. But, the, but again, you're, you're right. There's many forms of violence. It's not, it's not just rockets and, and military weaponry and bombs and things that we're seeing right now between Israel and Hamas. 
There's a lot of other ways that we need to understand that coercive power of the state can be a form of violence when it's used in a discriminatory way. Why do you consider? Why do you continue to work towards tirelessly making all these trips and all the work that you put into this? Uh, when to many it just seems like this intractable conflict that's never going to change because what you have here is it's such a mess that uh, like everyone just says the 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 platitude oh, you know it's just complicated but you continue to work towards it when. From my perspective, there's no reason to be optimistic about the future. It just looks everything just looks ominous. Like this is just going to get worse and worse and continue as it's been for so long. Yeah, if you're if you say you're optimistic about this conflict, you're obviously not paying attention. The pessimists have all the facts, but I'm pegging myself on a different scale, and that's sort of the hope versus despair scale. And as a Christian, I don't think I really had the luxury to live in despair. I can I can I can be despairing at times, but I don't have the I can't stay there. I actually have an eschatological hope, so I. I, I can live into that hope. But the first principle of peacemaking um, is, is and we've our, we have our own kind of pra- principles and practices of peacemaking that we use to frame a lot of our teaching. And the first principle of peacemaking is the belief that, that change is possible, that transformation happens, that we don't live in the deterministic universe, and that, that there is no conflict that's completely intractable. So this one is definitely decades old, long-running, caught in a the very destructive silent uh, cycle of violence and 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 we now we see this you know this 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 episode of it and the, and yet we believe that transformation is possible um, and you know again you, you mentioned that I worked in the Bush administration I was not a confidant of the president or of Condi Rice but I worked in the State Department when Rice was secretary in her policy planning office and and, and you look at the life of Condoleezza Rice it's quite amazing to think about she grew up in segregated Alabama and a time when it looked like you know, Jim Crow was going to last forever. The civil rights movement was happening, and there was such massive resistance to the civil rights movement. And there was the Birmingham church bombing. She knew the three, little, the, the four little girls that were killed in the Birmingham church bombing in 1963. And her family fled Alabama, and they moved to to, to Colorado. And she learned, you know, went to college there and learned to speak Russian and became an expert in Soviet Union, which brought her into the Reagan White House and ultimately, you know, became Secretary of State. But you think about these two institutions, Jim Crow segregation, Soviet communism, that shaped her life. She's, she's only in her 60s today. She's not an old woman. And yet neither of those institutions exists anymore. But there, were, there was a time when each of them looked permanent and, and forever a facet of our lives. And what Rice used to say is that what looks impossible today can look inevitable tomorrow, which does not mean you should be optimistic that this conflict's about to be solved in Israel Palestine, because it's probably not. But on the, on the, by the same token, we believe that, print, that, that peacemaking begins with this principle that, that conflict can, can be transformed into something else, that people can change and that systems can change. And, and we've, you know, we've seen the opposite in all our lives, but we've also seen that happen. Apartheid ended in South Africa in a bloodless way. It didn't end perfectly and beautifully, and there's a lot of lingering problems that didn't get solved in there. But nobody in the 1980s would have imagined that the, that the apartheid system in South Africa would end without violence. And it did. Change does happen. Change does happen. Uh, you know, we see this uh, in, in Rwanda after the genocide that occurred there. And, you know, Rwanda's putting things together moving forward. Um, I, I, I don't know how to respond to the, uh, the, the pessimists have all the facts, but we're not on the optimist pessimist scale. We're on a different one with hope. I think that's the right. I mean, I, I don't know what else we can do um, other than that. When, uh, when people say they want to get involved, they want to participate, 
uh, obviously Telus is the organization that I, I have a great deal of trust in. Uh, what do you guys do? What, do? what are you saying right now? If, if people want to participate, um, contact your senators, talk to your representatives. Like, is that where we're going? What, or, or what else can we do? Well, you know, I, I mean, an entry place in this, if people are newer to this issue, is to learn. I mean, to begin by learning. Uh, inform yourself. This is a complicated story. It is. A, it's a very complex situation. And, you know, there's a, a Supreme Court justice from the early 20th century who based, I'll paraphrase, but he said that, that simplicity on this side of complexity is worthless, but simplicity on the other side of complexity is of great value. And the point in that is that it's really easy and it's in our nature to want to simplify things as possible quickly. Tell me who the good guys and bad guys are. Boom. I'm, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm ready to go. And it's, it's rarely that easy in the world. So it's important that we are willing to go through the complexity and out of that, then we can get to a place where there is some clarity and simplicity what to do. But I think a lot of people probably need to go on a learning journey. They need to, to inform themselves more. At the same time, people are dying even right now in real time. So it's not like we have all the time in the world just to get to, just to learn, but we learn, but we need to listen to understand. We need to, you know, that, that's another, that's one of the, the first practices that we talk about in peacemaking is learning to listen, to understand. And so in Informing ourselves uh, is, is really a key place to start. But peacemaking, properly understood, is never just about sort of singing kumbaya and hoping we all get along and that sort of thing. It's not a way to avoid conflict. It is our way to deal with conflict. And so we have to, we have to take what we know and, and then begin to, you know, to act around it. We have to understand that there are direct links between peace and justice. And so we, we learn to pursue justice as a way to get to peace. And the, the uniqueness of peacemaking in terms of other kinds of activism is that it is the way to pursue justice that is oriented toward healing. That's the, I mean, that's the, that's the power of this. Justice by itself can be another form of revenge. But justice that's oriented toward healing is the way to you, you try to bring folks along with you. You hold open that possibility. Even enemies, your enemies can change. And you try to hold open the possibility they can join you in a different kind of future in which all can flourish. And that's the uniqueness of peace bank. So anyway, my point is that th- there's, a, there's a learning journey a lot of people need to go on. If you're already down that road and you have some, some information and knowledge about this, some relationships around it, you know some folks that are connected to this um, or, or yourself are connected to it, then it's important that you begin to, to really be active and speak out. So yes, be in touch with your members of Congress. Mostly they hear from people who are very, very pro-Israel. Sometimes they hear from people who are very, very pro-Palestine. Rarely do they hear from someone who's going to say, I actually want to see the flourishing of all. Now, in, in that, it's very Pollyannish to say, I love everybody and we want them all to flourish. You have to be willing then to talk about this asymmetry of this conflict, the occupation, uh, the way Israelis control Palestinian lives. And you have to be willing to address those issues because, again, that's the way you get toward the, the, the better reality is you deal with the, the, the power imbalance and the asymmetry that exists right now, but, but asking people to be involved in those ways. So if you want to get involved, please check us out at Telos. We're at telosgroup.org on the web, and you can sign up for a newsletter that will give you uh, every other week. We'll, we send out a newsletter that gives you uh, analysis of things that are going on uh, in Israel-Palestine. We also do some programming in the United States. We have a trip in the American South modeled after our Israel-Palestine trips. And so we often have issues around racial justice in America in there. Uh, other issues, uh, other just if, if things about peacemaking and how to, and how to, you know, some of the skills that we're trying to help people develop in that arena. And we do regular webinars. We have a podcast. Uh, it's called the Weekly Check-In that we'd love people to listen to. 
And uh, there's, you know, there's other ways. Check out our principles and practices of peacemaking, which is available on our website. And it gives you six principles and six practices. Some of them I've been talking about on here today. Todd, this has been great. Thanks for all your help. Thanks for the work that you're doing. Uh, one of the things about Christianity is that you see certain people and you're like, yeah, I'm really glad I'm on the same team as them. And uh, you're definitely one of those people for me. So love the work you're doing. Thanks for the time. It's good chatting with you. So great catching up with you. Thanks for being interested uh, and staying in the game with us. Thanks, Luke. Yeah. Organization, check out their website. Uh, there'll be links in the show notes, but I encourage you sign up for the newsletter. It comes out every two weeks. Um, they've got a lot of information that it's just super invaluable for understanding this conflict. And what I love the most about them is that this is not anti-Israeli. It's not anti-Palestinian. It's pro-Israeli, pro-Palestinian, because the only way to have peace is for there to be justice for all. And so I just love their attitude. I love their work. I highly endorse whatever they're doing as something that'd be really valuable to you. Uh, And let me just remind you that quote that he said, if you say you're optimistic about this conflict, um, (laughs) you're just wrong uh, because the pessimists have all the fact, but we as people of faith are not on the optimistic pessimistic scale, but we are on the hope versus despair scale. Um, I encourage you to live into hope this week and to help put hope into action. So thanks for checking out the podcast. We'll be back next week. We're doing a little Preachers and Sneakers next week. All right, we'll see you then. Take care, friends. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>